Hi, this is Tawny from the Dirty Bits Podcast, and you're listening to Concession Stand on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. You're listening to the Concession Stand Podcast on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. From movies and TV to consoles and video games, don't let your geek flag fly with your hosts, Nick Howe and Andy Nelson. Session Stand Podcast. If you're joining us for the first time, we are glad to have you on board for episode number 53. I'm Nick Howell, and sitting across from me, Mr. Andy Nelson. How are you, sir? I am doing fantastic. Coming up later in the show, we'll talk about a bunch of Star Wars news, some more details regarding that Lord of the Rings series we talked about last week, and a few Mm -hmm. high-profile video games will soon be showing up on our TV and movie screens. Well, you can find this and other shows over at orbitaljigsaw.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash official concession stand, or over on Twitter at concession stand. Come on over, hang out with us, let us know your thoughts on the show over on iTunes, and if you like what we're doing, head over to patreon.com slash concession stand, throw a couple of bucks in the tip jar, or you can even sign up to do your very own Stone Cold Salute on an upcoming episode. But... Let's crack a beer and get right into it. Yes. Andy, last week we talked about decline of numbers at the box office. A couple weeks before that, we were talking about how you consume stuff at home. Tonight, we want to talk about one of the guys that really set the standard, if not the guy. Yeah, yeah. That set the standard for big numbers at the box office. Yeah, and why the expectations are so high. I mean, uh, obviously, we're both big Steven Spielberg fans, and we recently sat down and watched Susan uh, Lacey's documentary on HBO. If you haven't seen this thing, check it out. It's a a two-and-a-half-hour sort of celebration of his career and his life, in a way, and it's sort of mark that he's made on it, uh, on movies. And uh, tonight, we want to talk about that film and and expand a little bit with our own insights and and opinions of of that film and, and Spielberg and how he means so much to us and to all fans of geek culture. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, some of the big things to really start this out. I mean, this was a chronological beginning to end compendium of his career with a few notable exceptions, which we'll talk about later. But starting at the very beginning of him being a kid uh, in the late 60s, coming into Universal, uh, starting to make his own little home movies, he was the stereotypical kind of kid that was nerdy and geeky and yep. a bit of an outsider, insecure about things, but found a home behind the lens calling action and cut. Yeah. And it was one of his kind of triv- or pivotal moments when he when he found that as a way, almost as an escapist sort of thing, right? Sure. And, it, you know, it, it, it's it's typical story of, of nerd who is maybe bullied and, and you know, uses that sort of... Uh, outlet as a, as a way to sort of escape, like you just said, yeah. and, and get into that. The, the cool thing about it is we get to see some of the, the some of the stuff that we we'd never seen before. There was that time um, after Spielberg had, had kind of made his mark in like sort of TV directing at Universal. We see a little bit of that. Yeah. Um, that we we find out that he ran around with those crazy, you know, if you want to call them the Brat Pack of Hollywood in the seventies. We're talking Coppola, Scorsese, Lucas. Um, uh, John Milius, Brian De Palma, all those guys hung out and used to hang out and 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 talk about movies. They're all big movie nerds, just kind of like how we are, but they all just happen to be making awesome movies at the same time. And Spielberg was a part of that group too. And we see this really cool behind the scenes, like home movie footage of them all just kind of 
playing pool and like they were passing the camera around. You could tell they were all trying to outdo each other. And then they, they, they cut to these interviews of these guys now kind of looking back fondly on that time. And wow, what a, what an amazing, just a glimpse into that time when, when basically they changed the, the face of Hollywood with these kind of movies that they were making and movies that have stood the test of time. So that was really cool to see just that sort of behind the scenes stuff for sure. Well, before he got into that, there is this legend that I wanted to bring up and address. And I think we we had a little bit of a disagreement of whether or not it was corroborated by Steven himself, but uh, it wasn't. We went back and double checked. But there is this legend for the listeners that don't know of him, how he got into Universal and ended up getting a deal as a TV director, as you mentioned before. In his early 20s, by the way. Yeah, exactly. So he would go on the tour, the the tram tour at Universal Studios, where they drive you around to all the psycho house and all of the stuff Mm -hmm. out back, right? The back lot. And in the middle of the tour, they take a bathroom break where they let you get off the tram, grab a bathroom, soda out of the machine, whatever. The story goes is that he would, and he did say this himself, he would go into the bathroom and just not come out. And he would wait until the tram left until he could hear a pin drop, his words. Yeah. And then he was on the lot. He was on the lot at Universal, would sneak onto Hitchcock pictures, would do... According to other stories, sure. sure and sure. And, he, and he had an office at the in, on the sixth <laughs> floor, and he put his name on it and just sort of ended up there. a phone and yeah. all kinds of stuff, right? So I thought that was, that was one of the more fun things. Of course, that is part of the lore of Hollywood sure. here uh, that, that we understand. But And he was uh, he was denied acceptance to USC Film School by USC. He said his grades weren't good enough, but then he said he had to sit down and interview him. And like, oh, no, sir, that's uh, we're just not going to take it. We're going to take that Lucas guy instead. So oh. that worked out for him. So at least they had a big name. But imagine if, if both of those guys had come out of that same university. Well, oh, wow. he ended up making uh, a short film called Amblin, which, funny enough, years later became Amblin Entertainment, yep. kind of the the name pseudonym for his uh, his production company. But uh, Amblin led to him getting a seven year deal at Universal under Sid Shine Scheinberg. Sid Scheinberg, yeah. yeah. And we hear from him as well, like yeah. about the deal that he made, and that was so cool. Yeah, like this, it's just that those classic stories that you love hearing about about how somebody just recognizes talent. And you take somebody under your wing, and and he said, "I'm going to live and die with you." You know, I will be there for your successes and failures. That was coming out of his mouth, is what he told him. Or no, I think Spielberg said something along those I'll lines. I'll have your back in failure yeah. as much as I will in success. Right. Right. So he goes off and he makes Duel for ABC, and we get that really cool story about how Lucas was like, "I don't know about the Spielberg kid," you know, and I'm going to go watch Duel, and he we walked out of a party or something at Coppola's house. Yeah. Like here are all these like cool stories. And uh, Lucas says, I was only going to watch about 30 minutes of it, and then I couldn't turn it off. And so then, like, he was like, accepted into the group at that point. They yeah. realized he was a, a thing. And then we and then we go right into right into Jaws territory and how that troubled production and some of the shortcuts that he had to take uh, to get that movie made. And it was, you know, we've all heard the legend of, of Jaws and the shark not working and right. all these 30-year anniversary, you know, documentaries we've seen on the DVD extras and he just talks about it's cool when you when you hear from him about like oh we the shark wasn't working so we created the yellow barrel thing and that it it, it helped make the 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 suspense real and it the, the the Hitchcock trick of it's almost scarier what you don't see um, and then you have this really cool thing where John Williams is talking about the the two notes and how the the notes build if the shark's close and if if he's further away the music goes away so as an audience whether or not you see that physical shark they told the the story and and the fear is all set on what you don't see and the music so and there's something inherently terrifying about the sea because we have no idea it's less explored than the moon and mars of at course. this point right? and i mean even if even if I mean, as a kid, I didn't live near the ocean, and you know, you were you were in in the in the Carolinas, Carolinas yeah. so you were at least close to it. But 
there was still that fear like that if you ever went to the i remember when we went to the ocean for the first time somewhere in the atlantic ocean probably in florida on a trip to disneyland or something but you're still nervous that there's going to be a shark because of what they set up there's that fear of the water oh i stepped on all kinds of crabs and shells and fish and you know you'd feel them slap your legs under the water yeah I, I don't like the ocean not because of that but i just don't like the ocean because of the unknown i'd rather just swim in a pool and that's the exact psychosis of what made the barrels and the dock and all of that stuff under the boat that you never saw actually work yeah well another one that, that uh, came up that we were thought was really special was bob balladin had a quote where he said uh, steven doesn't want to make little personal movies he wants to make big personal movies what what did you take away from this one well if you don't know who bob balladin is he is if you've seen Close Encounters, he's the the scientist with um, like the red hair that's kind of long and the big beard yeah. that always sits down with Francois Truffaut and asks um, Dreyfus's character all the all the questions. Um, doesn't want to make little personal movies; he wants to make big personal movies. The funny thing that we take out of this is, and as a kid, you don't really realize this, and and you've started to see like the ongoing theme of of um, people and kids and stories told about families in broken homes and. Um, there's a there's a personal element. There was the story that he told in in the doc about, and I don't want to spoil too much of this, but he told about a specific thing that happened in his own household when his parents divorced, or when the announcement of that happened, and and that scene that he describes is literally recreated in Close Encounters. But there's no reason for us to ever know that. But then it's to see this like therapeutic like uh, recreation of, of of that and. He even says himself that like his movies were sort of a therapy for him. Um, so that was an interesting sort of side of it that we'd never, for us, it's just like, oh, and there's a lot of that, like in his movies, this sitting around at the dinner table, um, which we can all relate to. Um, there's that special scene in Jaws where uh, the kid looks at Dreyfus or at uh, Scheider's character and they have that moment where they, they make the claw marks. Yeah. And um, there's the the scene in, in um, E.T. where they have the, the awkward moment where where Elliot says something like, "Well, Dad would know something about this," and there's that you yeah. never really, you never really, as a kid, you never really uh, thought about it. I didn't, you know. Um, but when you see it all and they bring it to your attention, you're like, "Oh yeah," you know. Well, a lot of this had to do with his dad being a workaholic. He worked in IT and with computers. Yeah. Uh, in the '60s, so there was a lot of that where Dad's never home. Mom, he described her as Peter Pan. Yeah. Uh, was just as fun as she was a friend. She wasn't mom. So that yeah, there's that element of missing authority, but at the same time, you're missing also that kind of protective figure of sorts, right? There's there's not anybody ever there, and there are the strong mother figures in all of his movies too. So that's there's 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 that I guess you could take away from that. The next big one that stood out for me was uh, once the Brat Pack was established, and they all started to trust each other and constructively critique each other's work, and it became competitive. Yeah, they would have these kind of pitch meetings within the group. So one day George Lucas brought this idea up of kind of a, st- a sci- sci-fi fantasy inter- you know in the stars where you had this dog character, and there was this <laughs> yeah. smuggler guy and the, they I had these laser sh- swords. Yeah, I think he showed him a rough cut without like the without all the effects in it and right. just said here's the thing and like and, and I guess De Palma being De Palma yeah. lost absolutely <laughs> lost his shit. Uh said what is this crap? Who is this dog guy? Uh, what is this even about? I have no idea what the hell you're even trying to tell me. What you need to do is have this opening thing at the thing where the credits come out of the screen and it tells you the whole story so that the audience understands what it is they're actually watching. Bam! 
get the the crawl. You get the opening crawl in Star Wars, <laughs> one of the most iconic things in all the Star Wars movies. You you think that's Lucas? No, it's Brian De Palma, if you can believe that. Drunk at dinner, yelling about <laughs> yeah. how stupid his Star Wars thing is. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Just stuff like that. This is why I watch these kinds of documentaries, because those little nuggets that you get out of it make the two-and-a-half-hour ride just totally worth it. And we can't even do that story justice. you got to watch it. Oh, of course. Uh, working with kids. You mentioned E.T. a little bit ago, and I think this is something that really made Spielberg stand out uh, for several different reasons. Uh, we have to look at E.T. and the way that he worked with uh, Drew Barrymore. I uh, can't remember the kid's name that played Elliot. Oh, uh, Henry Henry Thomas. Thomas, yes. And just the, Even the, some, little, the little boy in Close Encounters. The oh, little absolutely. kids in Jaws. I mean, it's just a running thing. Absolutely. And just the way that he shot in continuity and made them do schoolwork on set and all of those kinds of, so that they would understand all of that and they wouldn't disrupt their days. Yeah, I didn't know that they shot the stuff with the kids in continuity. I didn't know they shot that movie in continuity to make it easier on the kids instead of being like, oh, yeah, oh so this that we're about to do happened three days ago. Right. Like, the, it's so much easier. And I never thought to think of that. Because uh, there's no way they still do that. I mean, I guess they would, but um, that's a really cool thing to 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 kind of make sure that because you can't make that movie without the kids, so you almost have to have them absolutely believe it in a way. And and you saw like a glimpse of like where Drew Barrymore was crying, and you see him working with them, and you just can tell that he's a big kid too, which he he says, but. Y- when you see like this behind the scenes stuff and yeah, the cameras are rolling when they show that stuff. So I'm sure they're on, you know, Oh, well I got to make sure I look good around the kid, but I don't think it, I, I, it feels, it felt genuine. It felt real to me. There's an authenticity to it for sure. After ET, I don't know if it was, I guess it was after ET. It was before ET, the, the failure of, of 1941. Well, I want, I don't want to gloss over that because there is a, a period of time after jaws and, uh, where, where close he, encounters, and close yeah. encounters where, he was trying something different. He was starting to get into the... He's had a couple of successes, and he wanted to get into some stuff that was a little more maybe experimental, stretch his legs, things like that. He wanted to try comedy. That's he what wanted to try comedy. Yeah. And that's a tricky thing to do coming out of sci-fi, uh, sci-fi fantasy type stuff. Yeah. And, you know, it was John Belushi, and it was a World War One thing, if I yeah. remember right. Yeah, it's, it's... I have not seen that in decades. I haven't seen it in a long time either. The thing that he, the thing that he did was, in the doc, is he says that... That, that script was written by Robert Zemeckis and, and Bob Gale, who, of course, created Back to the Future later. Yep. Um, and he said that it was a lean and mean, like a tight script, and, and he just he made it bigger than it was. So he almost kind of took credit for it and almost said they had, without saying it, he said the movie was fine until I got a hold of it. <laughs> you know, and, and the fact that he's even willing to admit that it was a failure uh, is, is pretty cool. Um, I will always argue that one of John Williams' best piece of music is the 1941 March. Really? So we got that. If you've ever, and I'll play it for you later. But okay. if you get a chance to hear that, it's it's great. But I mean, even 1941, you had Dan Aykroyd, you had John Belushi. It was it's fun, it's big, it's worth a watch if you haven't seen it. But you can understand why it might have been a failure at that time. Well, who else to make a comedy with than the guys that were at the height of their Saturday sure. Night Live careers and all of that stuff going on in the late 70s there? So and Belushi's like he's fantastic in that. Uh, and it, you know, it's it's very Bluto Blatarsky, you know, <laughs> Animal House John Belushi, but right. in like a World War II setting. Okay, that's a, that's a hard one to get to, but all right, yeah. Um, the interesting part about that, though, is that you you tend to lose confidence when things don't go well like that as a director, as a filmmaker. But then good old friend George Lucas comes by and goes, I want to make a James Bond movie. Yeah. And it just seems like, I don't want to make a James Bond movie. Well, it's about this archaeologist guy, and he goes out and he finds these supernatural treasures. Yeah, it would be like of- the old serials from the 50s that we used to watch. Right. He's like, okay, that sounds kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm in. 
but the funny but the funny thing we learn is is that is that universe or sorry paramount whoever was underwriting it at the time columbia wasn't it uh it's a paramount movie yeah but uh they didn't have the confidence in spielberg because he had gone over budget on jaws and uh in 1941 was a bit of a failure so they were like oh what are we gonna do um and and so I, what is it? The story was something like uh, it has to be 20 million bucks and we have to come in on schedule. Steven, Steven, you have to promise me. Yeah, you're not going to go over 20 million dollars. Like, buddy, seriously. Yeah. And Spielberg said, OK. And then we get Raiders of the Lost Ark, which we will argue till the day. I, I will argue till the day. I die. It's a perfect movie. It is. It is absolutely perfect. And I can't imagine a world without Indiana Jones. And I know you no. can't either. You can imagine a world without Crystal Skull, but that's a whole different discussion. True. Uh, the other thing that came out of this was uh, he started to get some some big press. He started to show up on interviews, started to go on 60 Minutes, which he's, was a big deal in the early 80s. Sure that was the show to watch on Sunday nights. Yeah, he's this hot young director that's made millions and millions of dollars on his on his pictures. At this point, let's say he's made E.T. already, yep. right? So now he's got Jaws, Close Encounters, and E.T. Yeah, there was a 1941 in there, but if you... <laughs> And at the time, these are like Jaws was the uh, created the term blockbuster. That's that started that. And it's what is what is that? From? Blockbuster is is if you had people waiting in line around the block to block to bust the block of, of foot traffic. Right. That's what the term blockbuster comes from. That's cool. And so he was the first one that created the blockbuster. People were lining up around the block to see Jaws. And eventually, probably lining up around the, the block to see Star Wars a couple of years later. But Spielberg was the one that started it with Jaws. Well, there was another piece uh, going back to the the release of Jaws at, more at the beginning of the film where he was riding around town on the release night with oh, some yeah. of the critics yeah. and his friends and everything. And they would go through Westwood and Hollywood and just see people lined up around the block to go see this movie. And it ran. It was only slated to run, I think, for 54 days, yeah. 50 days, something like that. And it ended up running for 170 days or something like that. About how long it took to shoot. <laughs> just an absurd. It was. I mean, that's that's half a year. Uh, it, it, imagine a film in 2017 being in the movie theaters for six months. Yeah. I can't even imagine that, much less a month. So anyway, um, he was on this 60 Minutes asking about... Is he is his ego getting a little bit too big at this point? Because you're you're no Mike Nichols, you're no Barry Levinson. Are your Where, movies are your movies art? Yeah, are they art? Is it if you're you're making fun of things, you're trying to make them goofy, you're trying to make them about family stuff. It's not real serious. Does that detract from the art? He was. It's like he's the first guy that started making movies for an audience. You know, and and Lucas did it too. Yeah. They, I don't think either of them ever expected Jaws or Star Wars to be as big as they were. But once they started realizing what that power was, then you come around and you make ET. Lucas wasn't involved in that one, but you know we're in, we're in, by by the time ET came out, and you already had Raiders, you already had Star Wars and Empire. So this big giant movie, things that people would look forward to, had never happened before, and now we're in this world. So there's two guys at the time that are making these crazy blockbuster movies, and 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 that hadn't happened before. And so I guess the there's a thing in film about you know it's it's an art and you know the, it's film and we're making a statement and and but these two guys are like we're just making a fun like popcorn movie that's a it's, but you know what I mean so there's there's the there's the press there's the there's the there's those film like uh, elitists Snobs, that yeah. yeah that are like well it's he's not making real film he's just making popcorn movies that you know and the Ed Bradley asks him right away like is this art you know and he says you're not on this without saying it he says you're not on the same level as like Mike Nichols and Barry Levinson but you could argue maybe he is what is art I mean, that's the whole thing there and are his movies art and 
Spielberg seems to say, yeah, they are. I mean, it is. It, uh, films are an art, whether they're commercially successful or not. It's still somebody's vision. You well, know? the thing that I took away from this was it sent him down a different kind of rabbit hole of the films that he made uh, throughout the rest of the 80s with things like Color Purple, um, Empire of the Sun. Yep. Uh, and, you know, yes, he still did Temple of Doom, but... That was 83, so then, yeah, after that, it's Color Purple, Empire of the Sun, and then Always. Always. Which, which are which are all sort of... And, and even attacking uh, Color Purple for him, you know, they there was accusations of him sort of not whitewashing it. That's the wrong word, but um, that he, he sentimentalized it too much. Um, if you've never read the color purple, the yeah. book it's filthy. Yeah. It's it is a filthy. filthy, filthy book. And it was required reading in high school for me. Really? I didn't yeah. know that. Uh, in ninth, ninth, ninth grade, we had to read huh. the color purple and the Hobbit, huh? which was, That's you know, polar opposite different things, but, ends okay. of the things. But I mean, gratuitous use of the P word and, you know, lesbian encounters and all kinds of stuff surrounded by, uh, you know, slavery and uh, pr- problems with uh, homes and, you know, black marriages and language and things like that. It was for a ninth grader reading that book. Wow. That was a really difficult book to read. For I've me. never read it. I'll admit that freely. I've seen the movie so, and I loved it. But yeah, yeah. Well, many people have seen this movie and, you know, Oprah Winfrey and Whoopi Goldberg in a uh, 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 a black movie. It's, it's fantastic. And, it, you know, I enjoy the movie. But at the same time, people need to understand that the liberties that Stephen took was to not go that far yeah. or as far as the book took it. And I don't know that I think he did the right thing there. I don't know that you could have gotten away with that movie. I think he still in, uh, I think he still makes his point about yeah. what happens there totally. without without going in, in uh, that but gets she in. Didn't, you didn't need the shot of her holding the mirror to her vagina no. or, you know, and explaining to her how to touch herself. And that, that that's, just wasn't that's a director's choice. And I would argue it's probably the correct one. Sure. And I think what, what happened at that time was I think he was trying to prove to the world that he didn't necessarily need to make the big alien blockbuster or Indiana Jones blockbuster. He was trying to say, I can make a, you know, call it a, a real movie as well. It even empire of the sun and always is a movie that is, is a forgotten about. Um, that's what he did. I think before uh, hook, I think it's 89 anyways. Um, a lot of those movies are, are it's it's him growing up in a way. Like he says that he married Kate Capshaw, you know, after Temple of Doom, and you know he starts to make movies that are more adult in fair and 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 tell a story, not necessarily through the eyes of a kid, because Empire of the Sun is certainly told through the eyes of a kid. I love Empire of the Sun. And by the way, just like when they start going to the Empire of the Sun stuff, isn't it crazy to hear Christian Bale like because they, they they brought in like all the the heavy hitters. The, that's what's kind of neat too. But they bring in Christian Bale and, and he's not talking in the Bruce Wayne voice. And I'm like, what? Christian Bale's real accent sucks. He's British. I know. He's like, oh, I think that uh, that's me doing a terrible <laughs> Christian Bale impression. You know, I just wanted to be like, say to me, but he doesn't. And yeah, it's it's it kind of throws you off. But um, that's a he walks into the barracks as a little kid and he's like, swear to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you mentioned him growing up and getting into serious films and marrying Kate, and there was a whole process that they went over about. Um, where he had kind of detracted away from Judaism because it made him even more yeah. of an outsider in the community. And one of the things about Kate Cap or Capshaw Upshaw, yeah, Kate Capshaw, Kate Capshaw, uh, that as part of the marriage was she converted to Judaism, really wanted to be part of the the um, the ceremonies and the traditions and all of that stuff of Orthodox Judaism. And one of the ways that he celebrated that or went about celebrating that was making Schindler's List. And this, I, I have to say, that this was my favorite 
part of this documentary yes. was the examination and some of the explanation by critics, by other filmmakers, by actors uh, of some of the elements that I had not truly understood before within Schindler's List and you know the details of the girl in the red coat mm-hmm. uh, and how that was a representation of the entire Holocaust yeah. uh, and how it was everybody knew it was going on, but everybody kind of turned a blind eye. And it was almost a narrative to society yeah. and, and life in general of how horrific, terrible things can happen if if evil is allowed and nobody says anything or does anything, cut right to the shot of her on the, the body cart being wheeled to the fire pit. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, 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 and that's, wow, I had never put all that together. I actually had to pause the documentary and just let my mind be blown for a second because I had never, I want to go watch Schindler's List again now. It's, and really put that all in perspective. I've I've watched it twice. It's not necessarily a movie you want to watch again and again because it's so tough to it's been watch. About Ten years since I've seen it. It's been a couple for me, but not that long. I, I went back and watched it a couple years ago. Um, but um, when that came out in '93, um, we'll get to the rest of '93 for him in a second because it was a huge year. But we knew that the Holocaust had happened, right? But we it's not like they were making movies about it. It's not like they were showing us old clips of things on the history channel. Right. Right. So this was our first exposure to just a portion of that. And we didn't even see the worst in this movie. We saw horrible things and we got a glimpse of to what it was like. Um, and he even talks about how he changed his entire movie making style. And by that, I mean, not these big sweeping crane shots and really cool special effect shots and composure. He said, he got down and dirty with it. He went handheld and he'd never done a lot of handheld work. And he ran it and, himself. Yeah. And he would just see stuff and they were telling all these crazy stories from, uh, and they shot at, at Auschwitz and, 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 and in the places where these things happen. So imagine I'm, I'm trying to put myself in, in the situation of being on a crew for something like this. Um, and just the, the, the gravity of where you're doing all of this. And then also having to make this film that is going to be a statement and that, needs to open up eyes to this horrible thing that happened and to have that amount of responsibility, not just for him, but for as a crew to get this out there to the world and let them see it. Uh, it's, it's impressive. And yeah. there's, it's hundred percent deserving of the best picture that it won and not, and it's not like, well, it's the best picture because they, they tackled this really, you know, it's not, that wasn't that like Hollywood, like this is the, this is the thing we should give it to. Like it absolutely deserved it as totally. a film. And there's some great moments with Liam Neeson talking about two other actors and about how he was taking direction from Steven in the minutest of details, like how to smoke. Yeah. And he was like, I'm a smoker. I know how to smoke. Don't tell me how to smoke and <laughs> worried about being puppeted and all that stuff. So definitely watch for, for some of that stuff alone. For me, that 20 minute section on Schindler's list is probably my favorite part of that it's, documentary. Yeah. Mine too. And, and it just reminds you that, that while he was the the great blockbuster director that we love to this day, he also can make a movie like that, and then a couple years later he'll make another one. But one other thing about the Schindler's List year, we need to remind everybody that in a one-year period, he made Schindler's List and Jurassic Park, two monumental parts of cinema, one for for the historical significance of it and what it's done to like him creating the show foundation and opening up eyes and, and, and getting stories from Holocaust survivors and documenting that for history. If, if, if that movie hadn't been made, all of that stuff wouldn't have happened, per- yeah. it, 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 but he had the, the power to do it. Like he had said, even that he wouldn't have done Schindler's, he kept putting it off and putting it off until he was ready. And, and at that point he was ready. 
And he was yeah, also he had, had the script since like eighty two or yeah, eighty three or something. Based on a book, and yeah. it's based on a true story. Um, but then the other thing that that happened at the same time where it was like time to make it was now we're going to make a dinosaur movie where they can run around because in nineteen ninety three him and Kathy Kennedy and a bunch of people went to ILM and Dennis Muren shows them this thing. Like I got this thing to show you of dinosaurs running basically generated by a computer. That's it. That's the beginning of CG. And there's this weird thing that they kind of gloss on in the documentary that I took away as like one of the crazy pivotal moments was that movie is all about like the danger of genetic engineering and the danger of technology. Um, you know, if we Run just, wild. right. But then to create that uh, we've, entered the digital age at the same time and look what can of worms that opens, you know, uh, not only just in filmmaking, but in general, like this is like just before the internet starts. I'll remember being in college in 1994, a year after this movie came out and somebody saying like, check this out, this worldwide web thing. And you would just see like a bunch of words on a screen instead of like a bunch of uh, like a page. And then like, you'd see a picture on your, on your computer screen of a thing you could click on. And it was a dinosaur from Jurassic Park. I was like, oh, this is like the most amazing. I, I'll never forget being in a computer lab at Indiana university and seeing the World Wide web for the first time. The, the digital age started with this and, and, and CG in general, the fact that we believed that those dinosaurs were there and that they had the technology to finally do it changed movie making forever. Uh, David Kep even says it in, in the uh, in the document. The screenwriter says when we sat down and saw that screen test, it was like when they f- when they added sound to motion pictures. That's how big and how monumental this moment was. Well, the big takeaway for me for for nineteen ninety three and for Steven Spielberg was those are two of arguably the most risky projects at that time that one man could have that any man could have taken on, and he took them both on. Yeah. It's insane. It, it is. It is insane to me to, to think to put that into perspective. And I had, granted, I was a shitty little snot-nosed teenager at this time. I had no perspective on what that meant. And even to the to be a you know a forty-year-old man now, I really didn't understand the gravity of what he went through to get both of those things made. And there's rumors of Lucas apparently cutting one or the two that you know we'll never know unless somebody tells us, or unless one of the two of them tells us. But yeah, I've. As someone who ended up working in technology and ended up out here in L.A., it's one of those things where we always look back on Jurassic Park. And one of the things that Kathy Kennedy called out was, as soon as he said he wanted to make a dinosaur movie, I immediately called on my friends that were in like puppeteering yeah. and you know prosthetics and things like that. And he's like, no, no, no. I need to see head-to-toe, full-length dinosaurs on screen running. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And all the puppeteer guys kind of just shrugged and went, uh... uh. Yeah, we got nothing. <laughs> uh, and then the ILM guy called. So here's here's a quick story that I, I just looked up. Uh, Sid Scheinberg, head of Universal at the time, which we know uh, gave Spielberg his start, wouldn't greenlight the Holocaust drama Schindler's List unless the director signed on for the summer dinosaur thriller Jurassic Park. Mm. He took the challenge in his stride, right? So he shot Jurassic Park in Hawaii in the autumn of 92. They completed the filming 12 days early. All right, that's nuts to begin with. And Spielberg's editor delivered a, f- uh, a super fast rough cut. So while Spielberg was working on Schindler's List, he was calling back to California, and Lucas was working on helping him edit that movie as he was shooting Schindler's List. In, in Poland. That's insane. Wow. Well, just to get even more insane, we have to move on to the next big project. But which- you could have retired at that point. You've done it all, oh, right? Of You've done it all. But he didn't. He went and made another monumental big movie. Saving Private Ryan. 
Um, this to me is this is one of the movies that came out while I was in college that greatly affected me as a teenager. Me as well, um, it, it left its mark on me in a big, big way. As as silly as the story about finding a lost soldier so that he could go home might be, as simple as that might be, the way that the story was told, the way that the shots were composed, the way that now, in, in a filmmaking way, I understand what it took to do that whole just opening Omaha Beach yeah. sequence. And it took 30 days. And they went yard by yard. They shot it in continuity, according to the according to the doc, and I had no idea. Yeah, they... I, a yard a day yeah. with eight different camera setups yeah. and shit and just one yard at a time for 30 days. <laughs> crazy. God! It's crazy. And, you know, many people argue, and it, it. I agree with the argument, it's the best 10 minutes of war movie put on film and may never be topped. For me, I was 21 years old when that came out, 22, um, and I had a grandfather who was in uh, D-Day plus three, so he was on Omaha Beach, but three days after all of that happened, and he would never talk about like the war, and I just, you know, oh, grandpa was in World War II, and that was cool, right? But that movie put, like, it, it made me realize what they went through. I, I had no concept of, yeah. like, being in a in combat, you know, I'd played some video games and I'd read some stuff and, but that it made it feel like you were there. And, and, and he did that. And it was this huge, like eye opening thing for me to realize, Oh man, my grandfather did that. And maybe that's why he never talks about it anymore. And he wouldn't go see it because he didn't want to relive it. It was also a big deal about the, the level of sound and sound editing yes. that went into that sequence and that entire movie. And what a difference that made uh, for that film because you can hear the biz- bullets whizzing by, hitting and, and and penetrating flesh and the water and yep. zipping through and yep. all of that and the machine guns going off and the bombs going off and the mortars going off, all of that is is just a part of it. And it's nothing. It's I'm not going to say it's nothing without the sound, but it wouldn't be the experience that sure. it was without that level that level of sound and the the care that was put into creating that experience. And we would be remiss to mention and they don't talk about it in the doc, but. Uh, they also him and Tom Hanks as a result of that, you know, they went out and made sure that those veterans from World War II were remembered and we we created the memorial for them and they've been champions for making sure that those guys are remembered. Um so that that's a cool thing that came out of that too aside from this fantastic movie that didn't win best picture, believe it or not. Uh Shakespeare in Love did. But uh there you go. How many people are still talking about Shakespeare in Love? Nobody. How many people are still talking about Saving Private Ryan? I rest my case. Today uh, all right, so getting into the 2000s or right around the Y2K millennium, uh, there's this interesting thing that happened where as we grow up, so does Steel- Steven Spielberg, and we get to this new era of Spielberg's career as a filmmaker, this this dark kind of dystopian, futuristic, yeah. kind of Blade Runner-esque kind of stuff, right? We get into computers and AI, and we get into Minority Report. Minority Report, which is you know a lot of people chuckle at that movie. I love that film. The movie's great. And then War of the Worlds. I War had some issues is with awesome. War of the Worlds, but it's still it's still a, a, a movie making clinic. <laughs> if you take the Universal lot tour today, that giant plane that crashed into the houses on the street is yep. still sitting up there. Yep. The interesting part that I took away from War of the Worlds was Steven's description of this was right after nine eleven. I believe it came out in oh two. Uh, I want to say three or four. I don't remember. He he made sure that this was a, a bit of a statement about what it was really like to be invaded. Yeah. And if we weren't careful, it wouldn't just be what happened on 9-11. It would be something that was a much grander scale. Yes, this was from the perspective of aliens invading Earth, 
but it was told in a way that was that was still very graphic and still very desperate and you know all of the things that were happening during the alien attack in war of the worlds where you felt complete helplessness yeah like there was nothing you could do yeah and again we get into i'm going to start calling it the spielberg trope of the separation of families that ultimately end up reunifying yep. at the end of the film sure right? it's it's become a trope in his films at this point so we had that again in uh do we have it in minority report uh, no not really we definitely had it in war of the Worlds yes. with his kids right yes so there, there is no mother in that picture. It's the single father. Right. Which again, broken home kind of yep. stuff, right? It's part, still part of that. Um, the other one that I want to talk about getting into the mid two thousands is Munich. And this one was very critically acclaimed, very well received, but not a very wide audience liked film. And a lot of people don't really know this story. It has to do with the Israelis and the Palestinians uh, and the, what happened at the Olympics, right? And there was something about this film, again, a 9-11 reference where he, there was a final shot of Munich is, is Eric Bana's character meeting with, I can't remember who that was, but it's a shot with a wide cityscape of New, York City. of New York City. And as Eric Bana walks off, they pan to the left and there's the Twin Towers sitting there. And this is after they've, they've fallen yeah. uh, from the attack. But Steven said he intentionally left it in there just to, they, or they put it back in there. Yeah. They recreated them in order to... Uh, just show as a memorial of sorts that that they were still there. So I don't know. There's there, there was a very dark period that we went through uh, between AI and Munich with War of the Worlds and Minority Report in there. That you know it, you could argue that a lot of it had to do with the attacks on 9/11 because he is a very outspoken patriot, idealist, ideologue, if however you want to say that. Um, but the, yeah, leaving stuff like that in place is almost like a memorial. Sure, for sure. They kind of ended with Munich as far as the big movies that they covered of his, and we talked about them leaving the towers in, but there are a number of things in this documentary as far as Spielberg's career that I thought they left out. Um, they did touch a little bit about, you know, 1941 wasn't a hit, but he's had some other critical failures as well. I mean, uh, Always was a critical failure. Hook, while I love that movie, yeah. it's not revered as one of his best but i i still to this day love that movie um i wasn't a big fan of terminal a lot of people weren't as well i know you like that movie I, well i didn't you, like the movie i like I, you I like tom it's hanks a, it's, a, it's a stanley tucci and tom hanks acting clinic yeah that movie so re regardless of the the story and the fact that he's trapped in the terminal there's a cute element to that and he plays it up but you can understand how frustrating it might be but that that film's just an acting clinic with tom hanks and tucci that's yeah. really all it is they also they 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 talk about how he you know formed dreamworks with uh katzenberg and, and david geffen and how they created their own movie studio for the first time in you know 50 some years or however long it was and there was a studio for a while that was dreamworks and how cool is it that these titans of of the movie and music and entertainment industry are, are creating their own studio but they, they failed to sort of say that, well, that kind of fell apart, but not really. I mean, there's still the DreamWorks brand, but they sold it to, to Paramount at, at a certain point. And, and or Viacom. They, yeah, I don't think they have an actual... I think there's 80 people that work at DreamWorks now, so it's... Yeah, it's still a, it's still a brand, but that they didn't really talk about that. I guess the other... I was surprised that they didn't say, after talking about all the, the kid movie stuff, I was surprised that they didn't say anything about Ready Player One coming up or... 
or whatever else he's working on. I think I can't remember the other word. It was still a pretty big secret, though. Maybe when she was shooting, could this be. Stuff. Yeah, could be because we didn't hear about that till this year. Yeah, because I'm excited um, after watching all of these. Um, we'll call them adult movies and yeah. and statements he's made about American history, whether it's Amistad or Lincoln. Which seeing Daniel Day Lewis like in a in a candid interview and seeing him talk about stuff that doesn't happen. Just, I know. Just seeing him, you're like <laughs> like even when he's not in character, you still hang on every word that guy says because he's. Because Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, um, I would have liked to have seen, like I said, more about Ready Player One to me seems like a return to his childlike or roots. And they didn't speak about Kingdom of Crystal Skull at all. We noticed that. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was one shot where they saw the, the, the Indiana Jones hat rolled over to Shia LaBeouf. And there were a couple of, yeah. of, of cutaways that they did to it, but they didn't intentionally mention it. And the other thing that I thought they didn't really bring up was the the influence he's had. So we, we know all the movies he's directed, but let's talk like I'm going to run down a list of things that he's involved as in as an executive producer. So okay. these major things that that are part of pop culture, uh, whether or not he directly directed them. Steven Spielberg is absolutely a part of it. Ready? Poltergeist, Gremlins, Goonies, Mm. Back to the Future, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, The Tiny Toons Adventures and uh, Animaniacs cartoons, Men in Black, Shrek, obviously, through DreamWorks, DreamWorks. Uh, Band of Brothers in the Pacific are all him. Even the Transformers movies are executive produced by Steven Spielberg. So guess who's making some even more chunk of change off of the Transformers movies besides Michael Michael Baker Blair. (laughs) Exactly. And then even even though he didn't do Jurassic Park 3 or Jurassic World or the upcoming Jurassic World sequel. He was an EP on it. He's still getting a chunk of it because he created the quote-unquote film world. And good for them. It's almost like a a throwback to say, thank you, Steven, for creating this this universe of... There's that universe word again. Uh uh, Of dinosaur universe. We have the all-new Jurassic universe. Okay, I'm going to stop now. (laughs) With all of that mentioned, I would like to kind of close this conversation out with not only influencing the influence of the films that he had, but some you know modern auteurs of his generation, and also some of the new up and comers that we're seeing today. So we mentioned the Brat Pack at the beginning of the film, which was De Palma, Lucas, uh, Scorsese, Spielberg. And Coppola. Yeah. That's the five from the Brat Pack. And let's talk about those five. Who's still making movies out of those five? Spielberg. And Scorsese. And Scorsese. Fair. Coppola's making wine. Lucas sold uh, Lucasfilm. He doesn't want to do it anymore. He's he's building an awesome museum here in L.A. Yes. Uh, yes. and, and De Palma is making his documentary about himself, Which about him being awesome. angry. I, I can't wait. I still haven't seen it. <laughs> it's still, it's on uh, Netflix. But or these, something, these, I uh, yeah, it is. And these are, these are great filmmakers that you wish were still telling stories, but Spielberg is, and has, has, a, has, a, has evolved as the world has gone on just like uh, Scorsese did as well. But then you have this, this next generation of not blockbuster filmmakers, but guys that, that are, when you go, when you hear, that it's a movie by this guy that it's going to sell tickets rather than just the, the lead actor. So to me, it's, it's um, the Spielberg cr- created the, the James Cameron's of the world. Cameron stands on his own, sure. but, but, but there's another Spielberg in Cameron and in Zemeckis and in Tim Burton, you see these guys that are, and they haven't had the, the cultural impact across these long landscapes and historical impact and uh, philanthropic impact. Uh, Cameron could be argued that maybe he did Ridley yep. Scott, like these guys, there's, there's a handful of guys that have done what he has. Spielberg is the absolute pinnacle and the top of the mountain of this. I don't think anybody can argue that it's, it's worth noting that he's not the only guy. You know, that there are still big oh, no. time 
No, you got to look at Cameron and Ridley and and Zemeckis and those guys from the late seventies and early and the seventies eighties. What we call it the twenty five year period from seventy five to sure. two thousand. Right, and I don't think it's a next generation. It's just everybody else that was also there that would inspire people to go see a film based on who directed or created the property. Just right? like you would go and see a Hitchcock movie, which we didn't grow up with. James Cameron or- could direct a. a some moss growing on a tree, yeah. and I'd go. I'm going to go watch it because it's a James Cameron film. You would say the That's same thing we currently about. about Christopher Nolan, sure, Peter Jackson, sure, uh, even Michael Bay. You know what you're going to get, whether or not you like it. You still know it's going to be a Michael Bay movie. I, I would wait cra- for that to come to. Disney. I know, but you know what I'm saying. Like, but you know, when you go see a Spielberg movie, you're going to get this. You yes. know, when you go see a Michael Bay movie, you're going to get this. When you go see a Quentin Tarantino movie, you're going to get this. That's the auteur thing. That's. There's a handful of David Fincher, maybe there's a there's a handful of guys and women that have a style and it's very rare. And there are names that will be said forever. And those are some of the names that we're talking about. But Spielberg is in a class of his own. Oh, and we can't forget about J.J. Abrams, who is responsible for all of the archival footage that we saw in this documentary, which in a weird twist of fate is how he and Steven became besties in the first place. Yeah, And and Spielberg's kind of a mentor to him. Like Scheinberg was to Spielberg beforehand. And you know, JJ's been called the next Spielberg. You know, you make a movie like super eight. That's a nod to Spielberg movies. Um, You make big entertaining star Trek movies. And yeah, I mean, I don't know lost. Sure. (laughs) But it's cool to see, um, paying it forward in a way. Yeah. I love seeing that. And I loved hearing stories on that documentary about how Spielberg works with the same team all the time and that he makes sure he, because there's a shorthand there and, and, and I can, I can relate to that even at the lowest level of Hollywood that I work in, um, that you bring in the same group of people. So you just have a shorthand and you can get things done quicker because at the end of the day, while you're making art or whatever you're making, there's an efficiency that needs to happen in order to get these things done on time and under budget. Well, if we do, if we look at some major takeaways from this documentary, because it is it was it, it's a big body of work. Yes, it's a big documentary. It's two, it's two and a half hours long. Uh, I just it's some key takeaways here to close things out. Andy, what's your favorite Spielberg movie and why? Can we say favorite Spielberg movie? Not Raiders of the Lost Ark. There can't be another answer to that, in my opinion. Well, you just threw me for a loop because now I don't know what to say to that. Because when you ask me that, I immediately think: Is it Jaws or is it Last Crusade? Favorite Spielberg movie. And I'm going to say Last Crusade, oh. and I'll tell you why. Uh, I love the father-son element of that movie. I love the father-son element of it. I like, there's a weird uh, Christian, and I and say what you will about my own uh, religious beliefs, there's a weird questioning of that, and there's a, a, a really cool mystical element of finding that, and maybe it's real, and maybe it's not, and there's something really cool about that movie. And it's just fun, and it's it's a it's a, a culmination of that character, and you're you're seeing him Indiana Jones, I mean, and you're seeing him making nods to the other movies that have happened, and it's it's just fun, and it's yeah, I'm gonna say Last Crusade. It's funny you brought that up because that triggered another memory of something else that was said. In order for Spielberg to accept Lucas's offer to make the film, he had to agree to make two more of them after that. Yeah, yeah so not right. only coming right. in after budget. So that's how we got the trilogy, right? Of Temple of Doom and Last Crusade. What's your favorite Spielberg movie? Uh, now that I've now that I've taken Raiders off the table, you, sorry. Um, it's it's probably going to be Jurassic Park. That's cool. I mean, it's probably if if it's favorite Spielberg movie is going to be Jurassic Park or Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. And one of the, it's very hard to choose between those two. For yeah, me. it's like it's like having a bunch of kids and saying who's your favorite. I mean, because he, he owned the '90s for me. It, yeah. it just it, those all of those movies, and even the early 2000s for that matter, with with Minority Report and even AI, which not everybody likes. I love it. Uh, War of the Worlds, I really enjoy. 
Um, so, I mean, it's hard for me to pick. It's going to come down to Jurassic Park and Saving Private Ryan, and I can't pick the uh, between those two. One more thing I'll say, and this is somewhat personal. Um, he is the reason I am sitting here right now in Sherman Oaks, California. Oh, really? Well, think about it. I mean, I wanted to get. Well, I didn't in, know it was that personal. Well, but it's it's I, I was I was touched and 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 um, motivated as a young kid to get involved in this sort of world somehow. Be careful! Be careful saying you were touched as a kid in Hollywood. I know, right I know, now, I know. It's, yeah, it's a little true. touchy right now. But I was no pun intended. Yeah, I, um, it was seeing Star Wars and seeing Indiana Jones and ET like open up this magical world that I wanted to be a part of. And I'll never get to that level. And I'll, it's nice to even be in the same sort of city as them. And but uh, yeah, he lives ten minutes away. Yeah, but like <laughs> we get to, and I still don't have a real job. I get to go make TV shows and movies for a living, and that's great. But the whole reason I do that is because I was inspired by him as a kid. My brother was inspired by stuff that he did as a kid. Um, and when we're all here now, and it's it's really cool to 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 think that there's. I would hope that I could, lead, not from my work, but just something I do, I would hope that I would make an impression on a child at some point to make them chase a dream. And that's, that's a really cool thing. You know, the thing that stands out for me from this documentary, one of the biggest things was just how passionate about the process of filmmaking he is. Yeah. Some of the things Scorsese said about how he could walk into a room and set up their uh, silhouette over there, this shot, this shot, this shot, and roll and action. And just he would just walk in and own a setup, and you just know it. Anytime somebody is that passionate about anything that they're doing, I can I want to sit and listen to them talk. Yes, about it. Yeah. whether you're in a band or writing a blog or whatever, scooping ice cream at Baskin Robbins. Sure, if you're passionate about it, it comes through. You bleed it, and I'm that way about tech. I'm that way about podcasting, and and I know I bore people to death sometimes. But I'm the opposite. I love sitting and listening to passionate people talking about what they're passionate about. I love hearing you tell me stories from from work about some of the things that you're passionate about. Um, Steven is obviously very passionate about the filmmaking process. I had never recognized that before on the surface. Yeah. But watching the documentary and just seeing him talk, and that whole time he had this huge smile on his face, and you could just tell how into this he was. And he's been doing it for almost 50 years. <laughs> yeah. You have to be that passionate about, to be able to do the same job for 50 years. And all of the other things he's involved with is crazy. And he's not done. Oh, so yes. I, I, what I, one of my biggest takeaways was that he is an insane workaholic and he is incredibly passionate about everything he is doing. And I could sit and listen to that man talk about what he does endlessly. And you can relate to that as a workaholic yourself. Yeah. 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 Right. But nobody likes to listen to what I have to say. But. In closing, I just want to point out one thing that, that, I, that I think is really important. Um, we are the perfect age of the kids that grew up with this. We have witnessed this entire career. We've been a part of it as an audience. We're now, uh, I don't want to call us colleagues, but we're, we're here now, now too. So we, we, we lo- host a show together. I sure, hope we're but, colleagues. But, but you know what I mean? Like colleagues in the film industry sure. um, or peers. Um, but we... We grew up hearing stories about the Hitchcock movies. We weren't a, we weren't a part of that time when Psycho came out and it changed the horror movie. Right. We weren't a part of Citizen Kane when that came out. We weren't a part of Gone with the Wind when that came out, right? But we grew up with this guy that's going to go down in history as arguably one of the definitely the most successful financially director of all time. Um, 
we are seeing this happen and we and we get to experience it as as it happens. It's the equivalent to me of of watching a Wayne Gretzky or a Michael Jordan or a or a Steve Jobs or or somebody that's like at the top of their game and watching them do it and we are only the beneficiaries of their body of work. I could not agree anymore and I can't wait to see Ready Player 1. Andy, how was your uh, your week this week? Well, I mentioned it last week. I did get to go to the Directors Guild on Tuesday of last week, and I saw Dunkirk again. I am dying to hear about this. Okay, so um, I had for I thought in my head for some reason I thought that movie was three hours long. I don't know why. Um, not I that it, being like an hour forty. It was an hour and forty six. Okay. But like because they they announce it like the lady comes out, she's like, "Oh, welcome. Uh, uh, Dunkirk is going to be showing, and uh, it's a hour and forty six minutes runtime." I'm like, "Wait, what?" And I said it to my wife, like, "Did they cut something out?" She's like, "What?" I'm like, "Ah, whatever." Um, so we watched the movie again. First time she's ever seen it. Uh, and so it's that I, I forgot how as soon as that movie starts, you're grabbing your, your knuckles are white until the movie is over. And it's such an amazing piece of, of cinema. And here we are talking about Spielberg. And, and now you, you, you have this Nolan thing and you look at something like that and you're like, all right, here's the, the next one. If you want to call him that or even close to it. Right. After that, it was great because they do this Q and a, well, it wasn't really a Q and a with the audience, but it's John Favreau who is on the board of the director's guild just talking to Nolan and just gushing about this movie. And you get to, and he asks him little, th- so here's the couple of things that I take from Nolan as he's talking about it. Okay. He doesn't put temp music into a movie when he's writing or when he's cutting it. Meaning that usually when you're cutting a movie, you drop some music from another movie to get the feel of it. He calls Hans Zimmer as he's shooting it and says, I want you to create this sort of feel or tone. And so he has Zimmer on contract, like an, uh, well before the movie has even started to give him a sort of ethereal sound that he wanted so he can sort of cut to that as he goes because I don't know if he's taking dailies and putting that all together. The other thing that I take away from it now after watching the Spielberg documentary is, is about how much of a student of cinema Nolan is as well yeah. and how he goes back and watches what other people did. He said he called Spielberg about shooting on the water. He said he called certain guys about what's it like to shoot on the water? What's it like to shoot? Well, like, so he's getting advice from these guys and it's great that like you hear these people talking to each other about what are the difficulties? How am I going to do this? Um, and just to hear him talk about also trying to be, and again, the thing about Dunkirk is it's it's a it's a famous it's it's a British legend just like over here a, a classic story from World War II would be about somebody you know some crazy thing Pearl that Harbor happened. or something sure yeah. it's it's their version if you want to call it that it's their version of that so he also like Spielberg when he goes back and makes something that he wanted to be as historically accurate as possible he wanted to get uh, he, he talked to people that were there and and he got actual boats that were used in the actual Dunkirk rescue and re, and redid them and shot on them and made sure that it was it was fascinating it was fascinating to hear him talk about this so I was lucky enough to hear that I could talk about that in a whole other show <laughs> I think we don't we have should. time we don't have time but yeah. uh, we'll wait for it to win the Academy the other Award thing for is, Best Picture on, on Saturday you were there as well we went to this uh, NXT wrestling show yes. in Riverside it took us two hours to get there but it was <sighs> absolutely worth the drive we took my daughter Emily she absolutely loved it uh, Serene and Dangerous from Bustle Wide Open was with us too Yes, great time seeing the NXT uh, guys in a house show it wasn't on TV but it had the the spirit and the feel and the and the fun of it. The crowd was fantastic. What a fun thing that was. And I would like to one more time uh, promote Mercy Christmas, my brother's movie. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to pre-order it, please do so. It's $12.99 on iTunes. It is a comedy horror Christmas romp that is well worth your time. Uh, and we're going to have them on the show at some point in the future so they can talk about it. And not just about their movie, but 
kind of the independent uh, filmmaking process and, and some of the, Ooh, that's the a things good you have to go through yeah. and, and the, the hoops you have to jump through to make it work and what it's like to get distribution and what it's like to get financing. So you can kind of get a taste of, of you know, maybe you have an idea and maybe you want to make something. Maybe they can give you some kind of insight. So we're hoping that's, that's going to happen. Mercy Christmas. Mercy Christmas. M-E-R-C-Y. Mercy Christmas. Okay. Did I screw that up? Did I say something no, different? No, you just okay. said it really fast. I want to make sure everybody Mercy understood. Christmas. Yeah. yeah. Well, Mercy uh, Christmas. How was your week? I know you went to NXT with me, but what else Woo! happened? Uh, I went on a movie shopping spree this week. Oh, uh, this weekend, I should say, because I am way behind on all of the films from 2017 that, as you guys know by now, I elect not to go see and pay <laughs> the better part of $40 to see in the theaters out here in Los Angeles. So there were tons of movies that I needed to catch up on that are now out on digital uh, that I wanted to have a proper viewing of in my home, as we've been talking about yep, in the last yep, few, few yep. episodes, right? So I went on a, we, we've got the cheap charts and we've got all kinds of stuff going on. We've got the holiday sales coming up. I am going to be taking huge advantage of all of those deals that are coming out. It's kind of like, you know, the deals are already going. We don't even have to wait till Friday after Thanksgiving anymore. Uh, yeah. Uh, I also watched the Ric Flair 30 for 30. Oh, I can't believe I watched it. And yet. while this is not the wrestling podcast, this is the TV and movies podcast. Uh, it counts as TV. It counts as, it, I, technically it's a documentary. Yeah, it's so it's a movie, I guess. Uh, it's done by ESPN. It's all available to anyone with cable or access to the Watch ESPN app. Uh, you can absolutely watch this. It's about 90 minutes, hour and a half, hour and 40 minutes. But it is a beginning-to-end tell-all of Rick Flair coming up, or Richard Fleer yeah. is the, his proper name, coming up uh, through the kind of Polish-Hungarian ranks uh, into what would be pro wrestling and how he uh, played ball in school. All that stuff didn't work out. We've heard these stories before. All the way to his transition to from WCW to WWF, and it is it's a curtain pull into the industry to kind of give you a peek what goes on behind the scenes, not only in his life but kind of as a whole of how the industry works and where it is today and leading to his retirement in the in two thousand eight. I yeah. think it was. He's a two time Hall of Famer. He is my all time favorite wrestler. He's one of my favorite like icons if personalities you will. personalities right at least his character is and i think the funny part about the documentary if you watch it is that you'll see that the personality became the man huh. uh or the man became the personality i should say so that was really good five star absolutely recommend it you don't have to be a fan of wrestling to appreciate it because rick flair is big enough that everybody knows him he is the michael jordan of wrestling you know rick flair was known for a lot of quick chops but you know what you need to do some quick hits <laughs> Ryan Johnson is uh, is making a name for himself, <laughs> and then uh, where did this guy come from? Uh, apparently, now not only is he going to be he's the, is he the director of Last Jedi? He is, yeah. He is also pitched and had approved a new idea for a brand new uh, Star Wars trilogy: ten, eleven, twelve. Uh, it's not ten, eleven, twelve. No. So this is not in the Skywalker saga. It's, I don't believe this will be called ten, eleven, twelve. Okay. This apparently is a brand new trilogy set in a in an area of the Star Wars universe that has never been explored in lore or whatever. So this is okay. potentially co- created completely from scratch. This tells me one thing. Number 1, Last Jedi must be amazing. Yeah. If they if they are like, "Yes, go ahead and he's going to write and direct the first movie of these three, and who knows what else happens afterwards. Now we know why he didn't get episode 9 because he's going to be busy doing all this stuff in prep." Episode and 10? Episode no. 9 because remember Trevorrow was supposed to do it and they're like, "Oh no, JJ's oh, right. doing it now." Right. If this guy made such a great Last Jedi movie, you'd think they'd be like, "Yep, yeah, make episode 9 too." Now we know why. 
Well, not only are we going to get a whole new trilogy of Star Wars, apparently we're also going to get a live-action TV series. Yeah, this was announced at a conference call, a Disney conference, like, earnings call. I don't, Emperor I've never, Palpatine. <laughs> never, yeah, I've never been a part of these, but Bob Iger announces right. that there's going to be some live-action Star Wars TV show probably in 2019. Huh. Seems to coincide right along the time of the Disney streaming service. Hmm. I'm hmm. twisting my hmm. evil mustache over yeah. here. Uh, Derek Connolly, who was the writer of Jurassic World, is now apparently going to script a Metal Gear Solid movie. And I'm okay with this as long as they get David Hayter in to somehow, whether it's through ADR or something, to voice Solid Snake. Otherwise, he could play no. him. He could play. He looks the part. If they put a beard or a mustache on him, I, 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 I'd buy it. Yeah, but he, well, I guess but the voice, you're right. The voice absolutely has to happen. Yes. Now, these movies are very, or these games were very cinematic to begin of with. Of course. So the transition, I don't know where they would pick it up as far as the storyline. Well, I would, I look back at like Final Fantasy Spirits Within or things yeah. that are CG films, and yeah. I wonder why we can't just do that. Why do we have to turn them into live action? Sure. If you look at Warcraft from last year, 80% of the film was CG generated orcs and other creatures yeah. and things. Uh, why do we, why does it have to be cast with physical people? And if they're doing that, why not just be in mocap so I'm, that you can make them whoever you want to be? I'm good with it as long as it's not as bad as Assassin's Creed. Hey, another or Doom, yeah, or another video game, Hitman. Remember that video? Uh, I love that original right? game. Yeah. So they're going to be making that apparently into a Hulu TV series from the creator of John Wick. Is this their response to that rumor that they're going to make that John Wick spinoff series about the Continental Hotel? Who's they? I don't. We don't know who they is yet. Oh, okay. We just know that it's in development. Well, why would the writer of John Wick or the creator of John Wick go a- against Continental to make a hitman? Th- that's what doesn't compute with me. Or maybe he owns the rights to Continental and he can make money off of both. That's uh, what I would do. Okay. That's what I would do. Uh, I'm going to say tread carefully, but skeptically, skeptically optim- optimistic. I can't Skeptically optimistic. It's tough, man. That is that is hard. Well, you know me. I'm a Lord of the Rings, Mark. Absolutely love Lord of the Rings. Yes. Arguably more than Star Wars. However. Blasphemy. Multiple seasons have been committed to by Amazon in a move that they have come out and bluntly said that they want to make the next Game of Thrones. Yeah. And... Okay, you have my... At first, you had my curiosity. Now you have my attention. We want to get in the swords and dragons business. Yes, and why wouldn't you? Yeah. Seems like everybody wants to try to to fill that void that will come after the impending final season of Game of Thrones in... Is it 2018 now or 2019? Or I stopped trying to keep up. I think it's 2019. I think it's 2019, right? right. Still, but HBO is still going to make their Game of Thrones other spinoff thing. Sure. So there's going to be a couple of swords and or we, swords and but, dragons. But imagine a world where we have TV shows of Game of Thrones stuff and Lord of the Rings stuff. I'm and okay Star with Star Wars stuff. Yes, yes, Holy this is shit. this is it. This is it. My head exploded. It's almost as exciting as Friday is going to be. November seventeenth. This is remember when October twenty seventh happened and all of these things came out. The same thing is happening on Friday. We have Justice League coming out in theaters. We have The Punisher coming onto Netflix, and we have that Star Wars Battlefront video game all on the same day. Head exploding oh my goodness which will bring me to something that i do want to mention the, the black friday thing that's coming next next weekend or whatever after thanksgiving it's black november now like the deals have already started so i will say this to all of the people making crazy deals right now for bringing out video games right now the november month the quarter four of the financial thing that makes all of these cool geek things come out to us whoever's in charge of that i will give you the Stone Cold Salute! I said give me a hell yeah! 
Well, speaking of deals, we have a big sale going on right now over in the Orbital Jigsaw merchandise yeah. store across all of our shows. As a matter of fact, the entire tpublic.com site is on sale. Yes. So speaking of Black November, not just Black Friday, everything's on sale. So you can find great deals on all shows from Orbital Jigsaw's podcast network, shirts, coffee mugs, everything, phone cases. Phone cases. We even have tote bags now. Well, oh. Right? Uh, it is the upcoming holiday season. I'm sure if you're listening to a podcast, either yourself or somebody you love listens to podcasts and loves some of the stuff they do, a t-shirt from their favorite show is a great idea. So don't forget to check out some sweet swag from your favorite shows or maybe their favorite shows as a gift idea or a stocking stuffer. But as I said at the beginning of the show, you can find us over on Facebook at facebook.com slash official concession stand, or just search. You'll find it there. You can find us on Twitter at concession stand. If you like what we're doing and want to hear us do some more, come over to patreon.com slash concession stand, throw a couple of bucks in the tip jar, sign up to do your very own stone cold salute. All right. So next week, we're going to have our full review of Justice League. We're excited to see it. Yes. Maybe not. I'm I'm skeptically optimistic. Oh, don't try it again. Wow. (laughs) I'm going into Justice League with very cautious hope. I bought the Danny Elfman score, and it's killing me not to listen to it. Because how I don't are wanna, you not listening to it? Because I don't want to ruin it. It's I don't supposed want, to be the old throwback. I don't. I have it themes. in my iTunes. It was like on sale this week, and I had to get it because it's Danny Elfman and it's Justice League. But I'm I'm not hitting play. It's very tough for me. <laughs> well, we will definitely have a review for Justice League next week. But I'm Nick Howell. You can find me over on Twitter at DatacenterDude. And I'm Andy Nelson. You can find me at AndyNelson76, also on Twitter. But until next time, later! Bye! This show is part of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. For more episodes, subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio. For details and show notes from each episode, check us out, OrbitalJigsaw.com.